It was early December when administrators at Vermont's Bennington College made the relatively unprecedented decision to close its campus. Students and faculty were told that for the time being, their job wasn't to go to class. It was to join search parties and look for a classmate who walked into a nearby forest and vanished, seemingly, into thin air. Paula Jean Weldon had heard about the legendary, quote, Long Trail, located just a few miles from her campus. The afternoon she went missing, she tried to recruit a few of her friends to come with her. But when several declined, she decided to venture into the woods alone that afternoon. Look, it is a beautiful but really strange area. Not far as an eerie ghost town. It's a collection of buildings that was once home to a thriving logging community that has now been abandoned for more than a century and a half. We know from witnesses that she apparently wasn't planning on anything more than a few hour hike. She didn't even bring a backpack, much less a change of clothes. But we do know what direction she was going from a group of hikers that passed her on the trail and briefly spoke with her. She was going northward in the direction of Glastonbury Mountain. Those hikers would be the last people ever to see Paula Jean Weldon alive again. Like the abandoned town that bears its name, the nearby Glastonbury Mountain has its own lure surrounding it. According to local legend and folklore, local Native American tribes would talk of man-eating rocks at the top of the mountain, and there were even rumors of odd human-like beasts that made it their home. Despite weeks of searches led by law enforcement and search parties and comprised of locals and students and even some aircraft, more than 70 years later, no one knows what happened to Paula Jean. She, like countless others, walked into the woods and was never seen again. Elements of her story sound familiar, but for reasons we'll explain later this episode, her story is also connected to a series of disappearances that are uniquely strange and hold a key to understanding what many have come to believe are clues to the mystery of missing people in the wild. Though what ultimately happened to Paula Jean is still a mystery, what we do know is that during a five-year period, Paula Jean was among five individuals who disappeared under increasingly bizarre circumstances in the strange area of forests that have become known as the Bennington Triangle. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. This is Hiding Something. Chapter 7. Thin Places the area that comprises the 35 square miles of forest that make up the Bennington Triangle is one of the most enchanting and frankly mysterious in all of New England. I mean, how many century and a half old ghost towns even exist on the eastern seaboard, much less ones situated in the middle of a forest? At its height in the 1880s, more than 240 people called the remote mountain town a home. However, by the 1930s, it was essentially abandoned because of changes in the logging industry. A 2010 census put the population at just eight people, it's unclear how many people even live there today. Then, there's the mystery of Glassbury Mountain itself. It's tough to paint a truly accurate picture of the mountain's history. It's one of those places where campfire stories, internet rumors, and Native American oral traditions have become conflated with stories about weird lights in the sky, a hairy wild man that would attack stagecoaches at the turn of the century, oh yeah, and that rock that would apparently slowly pull victims into it. All of that is interesting, but look, you could spend a lot of time speculating about the origins of regional folklore. Let's focus more on what we know for sure. Along with its history and cultural significance, there's one other odd thing about Glastonbury Mountain that's essentially a mystery. It's the stone formations. You can see there's another one right here. It's a rock pile. 
you might not be able to see through the ferns, but there's one right there, one right there. Usually we'll find fieldstone piles, like in a farming community, but they don't look like this. This is there's a lot of stones here. That kind of looks like a circle, doesn't it? Circle here. Hmm. Well, that is uh, mysterious. That's a clip from a YouTube video posted on the Green Mountain Metal Detecting Group's page. It shows two hikers encountering odd rock piles on the forest-covered mountain. They also stumbled on some sort of stone wall that, judging from the vegetation growth on and around it, was apparently very old. All right, well, we've been wandering for, I don't know, 20 minutes around the GPS point, and I spotted a stone wall. You see the stone wall through? And, oh, yeah, I see it. And uh, right in front of me, I'll show you what it looks like. See this mound? Check this out. That's definitely a big structure. I mean, it doesn't appear to be a cellar because it's not underground, it's above ground. Um, interesting, and I don't see a way in, do you? It's just a solid, maybe they had stairs going up in. But you, you can see the size of this tree right here. It grew to that size and then died and then rotted away. How long would that be? This isn't quite big enough to be uh, the thing that, that the hunter was telling us about. So there must be more, I would guess. Rock formations are a common sight on Glastonbury Mountain, and the mountain is home to mysterious cairns. That's a Scottish term for intricately crafted, man-made structures constructed by piling rocks on top of each other. Historically, similar structures have been found around the world, particularly in Europe, and historians believe that they served a variety of purposes, from burial markers to astronomical guides. But there's something odd about the ones on Glastonbury Mountain, some of which were only discovered in recent decades. The archaeologists who discovered some of them said that their, quote, cultural origins are uncertain, but which could be very well prehistoric. End quote. There's a website called rock-piles.com, which, if you're looking to do some research on mysterious piles of rocks, I highly recommend. For real, they take an extremely deep dive into the purposes, locations, building methods, and histories of rock piles around the world. And it was apparently mostly maintained by Ivy League professors. It's a weird but super interesting website. And every entry is thoroughly sourced. In fact, the article on the Glastonbury Mountain was pinned by an acclaimed Princeton professor. The site talked to several historians and experts about the structures on the mountains, as well as things like moss growth and plants growing around them to determine the date they were built. They determined that some of the stone formations on Glastonbury Mountain predate Europeans' arrival to the continent, though it was difficult to tell when they were first built. And here's the thing, looking towards the past can be an important way to find clues to questions we have about the present. Last episode, we heard from Idaho State University professor Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum about how Native American art depicting a primate-like creature has led him to believe that casts made from alleged Sasquatch footprints are authentic. But some people take things further, and to be honest, beyond the realm of scientific observation and logical deduction, this is where things can get a little weird. The mysterious rock piles, the abandoned ghost town, and the legends of terrifying creatures add to the allure of the mountain. But it's the disappearances and odd happenings that have cast a sinister light on the region and led some to classify it as a, quote, thin place. Journalist John Billman references this concept in his book about national park disappearances, The Cold Vanish, and it's a common theme in discussions with people interested in the missing 411 phenomenon. 
Though the concept of thin places was generally first associated with Celtic civilizations, the folklore-based idea is that there are physical locations where this world and the great beyond seem to merge in strange ways. Dating back to the Old Testament, where God descended on Mount Sinai to deliver Moses the Ten Commandments, people have believed that there are strange places on earth where the supernatural intersects with the physical. The idea is that there are some places where the veil between our world and the next becomes thin, hence the name, thin places. Often, these places were sacred to ancient people and were marked with large rock structures or symbols made from carefully arranged stones. Okay, for a sec, we need to get a little, well, honestly, kind of trippy here. In researching this podcast, the idea of these sort of disappearance hot zones came up repeatedly. And look, I don't want to discount people's good faith thoughts. But to be honest, the idea of thin places seems like the kind of fringe thinking that has led to some in the missing 411 movement and people like David Polites being opened up to criticism at best and at worst, ridicule. But if you're going to criticize people, you should at least be willing to hear them out. Well, we're all spiritual demand. We're all spiritual beings. We, we don't have to be religious, but we're all spiritual beings. According to uh, Stephen Hawkins, according to a physicist, energy, which we are all made of at our most minute level, cannot die. It can only change forms. So if you're religious, you'll call, you're going to go to heaven when, when this body gives up. If you're a physicist, you say you're going to go to another dimension. And that's how they look at it. So there's really no reason to be divided among spirituality and, and science. That's why my last book, The Quantum Bigfoot, is uh, says bringing science and spirituality back together. I, I mentioned a lot of things about ancient scriptures and how it conforms to modern science, which is what quantum physics is, modern science. And I just encourage researchers and I encourage academia to consider that modern science. These guys were brilliant a hundred years ago who got into it and figured out how all things work throughout the universe from the most minute level of our existence all the way through the universe. Uh, we can't get our head around it all, but we can certainly look into it and and think about it because it's fun. It's really fun, exciting. That's Ron Moorhead. We heard from him way back in episode two. He's the one who provided us the recordings of the strange sounds he heard at a remote hunting lodge in the Sierra Mountains whose origins are, honestly, pretty unexplainable. For a refresher, here's what he captured on audio that night. Ron's friends with David Pilates and even appears in his film Missing 411 The Hunted. He's also the author of the book The Quantum Bigfoot. Okay, the title is a little out there, but the crux of his perspective is essentially that the intersection of science and spirituality is essentially its own sort of thin place. He makes a case that quantum physics mathematically allow for other dimensions to exist. And in those other dimensions, other life forms also exist. But, for reasons we don't fully understand, according to some other theories, they intersect with ours in ways that are outside of our understanding. To him, one person's quote-unquote spirituality is another person's understanding of some interdimensional intersections. He doesn't use the term thin places, but the implication is there. It walked across the eons of time, not human, more beast than man. You have the camp of the, the scientific-minded uh, people that need physical evidence. They need, they basically think that it's an evolved ape. And then you have the, the woo side or the supernatural side. The idea that this is an ethereal being, that it can dematerialize. It has 
different spiritual powers that we don't possess and it's very in tune with its environment more so than we can even understand so some of my work I've um, included my rendition of what I would think it would, a portal would look like. That dramatic piece of audio is from an interview with artist Greg Allen from the Canadian Broadcast Corporation. Greg creates Bigfoot-related art, but in this clip, he does a pretty articulate job of briefly explaining the view that people like Moorhead hold. Essentially, it's that aliens, Bigfoot creatures, and other weird anomalies exist in scientifically explainable other dimensions that, for reasons that are still not totally clear to us, intersect with ours. Thin places, with their ancient rock formation and other anomalies, in some people's views, serve as some sort of portal between our world and theirs. Yeah, okay, so let's pause for a second. We're coming to the end of this season, and it's time to lay some cards on the table. If you're listening to this, you spent a lot of time with my voice in your ear, so I think it's only fair that you hear what I think about all of this. Obviously, I've spent a lot of time researching missing people in America's wildlands and talking to people who have dedicated themselves to unsolving this mystery. But the approach I wanted to take wasn't just as some interested personality, but also as a journalist. I've spent my entire adult life in the field of journalism. I was a magazine editor. I hold a journalism degree. Personally, I'm religious, but professionally, I have to be a skeptic. My job is to investigate, ask questions, and turn my conclusions into compelling and ultimately true stories that demonstrate a greater understanding of our world. That's what drew me to tackle this podcast in the first place. And when it comes to the idea that Ron Moorhead articulates and David Polites implies, I'm extremely skeptical, to the point of almost being dismissive. I mean, on a very basic level, it all seems kind of absurd. But when I think about it purely objectively, I know there must be a reason that ancient people spent their time building rock formations in the wilderness instead of hunting for food or building shelter. There also must be a reason that seemingly normal people recount strange, unexplainable encounters. There must be some logical explanation for people vanishing in the woods in unexplained circumstances. And, I mean, look, it's just not fair to think that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Now, people who read the books know that I usually don't write about climbers because their fatality rate is pretty high and uh, it could be explained away pretty easily what happens to some of these guys and ladies. But this one particular case was a guy who had summited Rainier over five times. And Rainier is not an easy summit. And uh, this guy was an optimal pro at climbing. And uh, even the climbers that professionally climb Rainier looked to him, looked to him for guidance. Stories in my books. Well, he was climbing with some friends, just a regular routine day, and he was the last one to come up. And he was on belay, meaning that the people had him hooked onto the carabiner, and they were monitoring his action coming up. And the climber up above said, "Rope just went limp." I didn't have a lot of tension on it, but it just went limp. It's like somebody unhooked. And they yelled down there. They didn't get a response. They pulled the rope up. There's nothing at the end. And that individual was never found. And there was no scream. There was no yell. There was no nothing. And that was really the first story that got me interested on that mountain. Now, since then, I've written about way over a dozen people that have vanished from there. Uh, including people that have written books about the trails around Rainier. And uh, that person disappeared under very ex unusual circumstances and was the last person on earth to ever get lost on a trail around there. So it, it's, a, it's a confirmed cluster zone of disappearances. That's David Polites describing a very odd disappearance on Mount Rainier National Park in a YouTube video titled The Mount Rainier Cluster of Missing People. 
If you watch enough of his videos, then you're probably pretty familiar with what he refers to as clusters. They're places he's identified as sort of hot zones for the disappearances. The cluster zones are central to his writings about disappearances. Obviously, Polites is extremely cautious with his words, but if you're willing to read into them, you see an element of commonality with his quote-unquote cluster zones, places in the wild where people just vanish, and what other people might call thin places. He doesn't call them thin places, but that's sort of what he implies here. And, for at least a five-year stretch in the late 40s, the Bennington Triangle could certainly be considered a cluster zone. It's this, not really the out-there theories, that drew me so much to the stories of the vanishings in the Bennington Triangle. Some are strange. Some are downright chilling. The year before Paula Jean Weldon vanished, a hunting guy named Mitty Rivers vanished while leading a trip in the area. But here's the thing, when he first became separated from the group, people weren't overly concerned. He spent so much time in his life hunting and fishing in the area that his friends figured he'd be fine. But after a massive search of the area by hundreds of volunteers over the course of a few days, the only clue as to what happened to him was a single rifle cartridge found in a stream. Rivers has never been seen again. Then in 1950, an eight-year-old boy vanished into the woods and was never seen again. Two weeks after that, two adult cousins went hiking together in the area. One of them, Frida Langer, slipped into a stream and she told her cousin Herbert Elsner to wait for her. She was just going to go real quickly back to the camp, put on dry clothes so they could continue their hike. When an eerie amount of time passed, Herbert decided to return to the camp and see what the holdup was. But when he got there, the group said that Frida had never shown back up. Again, for two weeks, hundreds of volunteers searched every inch of the surrounding area. It would be a year later when two fishermen found her badly decomposed body. The cause of death couldn't be determined, and the body was found in an area volunteers had searched months earlier. But perhaps the strangest disappearance in the Biddington Triangle is that of James Tedford. It's honestly one of the weirdest cases we'll discuss all season. And the more details you hear, the less it makes sense. Okay, here's what we know. On December 1st, 1949, three years to the day that Paula Jean went missing, James Tedford was on a bus heading to the town of Bennington to visit family in the area. Also on the bus were 14 other passengers and a driver. Many reported seeing James Tedford sleeping in a seat as they passed through the Green Mountain National Forest near Glastonbury Mountain. But when they arrived at their destination, passengers realized something strange. James Tedford was gone. They had definitely seen Tedford get back on the bus at the last stop hours ago, and even saw him sleeping in a seat as the bus drove through the snowy forest. And no one, including the driver, ever saw him get off the bus. Also, all of Tedford's luggage was still on the bus. His travel bus schedule was even still sitting on his seat. It seemed like Tedford had literally vanished from a moving bus that was driving through the forest. There's one other strange detail that seems worth noting. Tedford was a military veteran, and when he returned from serving in World War II several years earlier, he was informed that his wife had vanished from their small village nestled in the wilds of Vermont. The odd disappearances all contributed to the strange fascination of the area, and over decades, people have drawn comparison to other weird places like the Bermuda Triangle and Easter Island. There's even another area in North America known as the Michigan Lake Triangle that has been home to mysterious vanishings of sailors and vessels, as well as sightings of lights in the sky. Oh yeah, ironically, at the center of the triangle, there may be an unexplainable underwater rock formation. <laughs> Seriously, in 2007, Mark Holly, a professor of underwater archaeology at Northwestern Michigan College, discovered the circularly arranged stones that some have compared to Stonehenge. A dive expedition in the area revealed that one of the stones appears to hold the etching of a mastodon, an animal that went extinct 10,000 years ago. 
The underwater structure hasn't gotten a lot of press recently, but it was a big deal in history circles when it was first discovered, with reputable newspapers like the Chicago Tribune running stories with headlines like, Underwater Stones Puzzle Archaeologist. But let's take a second and get skeptical about cluster zones and spooky places. What if there is a logical explanation for all of this? Some people speculate that the Bennington vanishings could have been the work of a serial killer. If this is the case, it would answer a lot of questions. And it's certainly plausible. I mean, that is aside from kidnapping someone off a moving bus. In fact, state officials were so unprepared to investigate Paula Jean Weldon's disappearance that her father actually had to lobby the governor to bring outside officials in. The case led officials to determine that the state needed more law enforcement, and they would soon establish the Vermont State Police. In other words, at the time, there just wasn't a lot of law enforcement in the area. It's certainly plausible that serial killers or other sort of nefarious, violent people are responsible, or at least partly responsible, for some of these vanishings. There are also other theories that could explain, quote, cluster zones that have nothing to do with portals or monsters. Some areas are just more dangerous than others for geographic reasons. Some trails are just more easy to get lost on than others. Some mountains are treacherous. The rock piles and local folklore are probably just a coincidence and have nothing to do with the vanishings. The only connection they have to them is the meaning we assign to them. Things like ghost towns and artifacts from past civilizations might add to the intrigue of the mysteries, but they probably aren't helpful to be looked at as clues to solving them. Right? Before we wrap today's episode, I want to give a quick update about the monolith we discussed last week. For context, state officials were flying over an area of desert in Utah when they discovered a 12-foot-tall metal monolith in a very remote location. Shortly after we recorded, though, internet users utilizing Google Maps were able to find its location and publish the coordinates online. After attracting curious travelers for days, something odd happened. It disappeared, and no one knows who took it. State officials say they don't even know. Coincidentally, some travelers were there when it was being dismantled. An Instagram user shared photos of several men dismantling the monolith, but they never identified themselves. Days earlier, a second monolith appeared on a Romanian hillside. It, too, has since vanished. So, what does this all mean? Are there answers? Where is this all leading to? Well, that's next time on the season finale of Hiding Something. Hiding Something is a production of the Ironclad Content Network. All episodes are written by me, Jesse Carey. Our editor and post-production producer is Chandler Strang. And hey, listen, if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcast. It really does help more people discover the show. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.